Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett and I am the events and lectures coordinator here. Today's lecture for Rubens and his legacy is by independent art historian and curator Mary Ann Stevens, who previously worked at the RA from 1983 to 2013 as the director of academic affairs here. Whilst here, she established the learning department and the architecture programme, professionalised the collections, library and archive, and for three years from September 2007, served as acting secretary. Throughout her time at the RA, she curated major exhibitions, including Building the Revolution, Soviet Art and Architecture from 1917 to 1935, Johann Zoffany, Society Observed, Constable Gainsborough, Turner and the Making of Landscape, and of course Manet, Portraying Life. Now an independent art historian and exhibition curator, Mary Ann specialises in 18th and 19th century art, with particular reference to British art and to French art in the second half of 19th century. She has published extensively in scholarly journals and exhibition catalogues, and curated or co-curated over 70 major international exhibitions. Mary Ann Stevens currently has a portfolio of projects that engage her in research, writing, and exhibition curation, which includes the curation of the RA's autumn 2015 Jean-Étienne Lyotard exhibition, which we're very looking, for, looking forward to that. Um, so without further ado, please join me in welcoming Mary Ann Stevens. Thank you, Amy, very much. I was feel having one CV read out is sort of a very uncomfortable thing to have to go through, but never mind. Um, I am dealing this, this afternoon with what I realized as I was working on the, the uh, lecture is an absolutely huge topic. Teaching French 19th century art history, I've uh, met, obviously, the impact of Rubens on many of the artists as you work your way through the century. Um, but then, of course, you have the luxury of being able to um, sort of spread this out over a series of lectures. Here I'm trying to condense everything into one hour. So forgive me if it seems rather dense, um, if there's a lot of material. Um, it is a rich subject. And um, yet I hope nonetheless that I'll make some sort of sense of it all and that you'll go away with a feeling and understanding of the fact that here we have uh, an artist, a uh, 17th century artist, who cast an incredibly long shadow over the 19th century. Well, any consideration of legacy or influence involves addressing the following questions. How is influence and legacy measured? In what ways might an artist have an impact on a younger practitioner? What are the aspects of a younger artist's work which identify the influence of another, in this case, significantly older artist? In addition, it is also important to consider what access artists had to the model or models of influence. And secondly, the reasons for a particular artist of the past being relevant at that particular moment to a younger practitioner. I quickly wish to provide some generic answers and observations on the above, such that they can effect, provide a framework for our investigation of the influence on, or the legacy of Rubens, on French avant-garde artists during the 19th century, notably from Delacroix to the Impressionists. First of all, there is the measurement of influence. At his most simple, this involves identification of borrowings, be they to do with the lifting of a motif, lifting of a compositional scheme, or the understanding of techniques, such as the handling of paint, support, palette. Secondly, 
The reasons behind borrowing from an older artist may be because the younger artist wishes to copy or imitate, in other words, to make direct quotations from the model in order to learn skills of composition or technique which will inform his or her own art. Secondly, it may have to do with paying homage to the older model. And thirdly, the use of an older model could form that of a springboard for the creation of the younger artist's own visual language, a new visual language. In addition, when considering the significance of a given model, it is important to consider not only access to the work or works of a specific model, but also the reasons that compelled the younger artist to seek out that specific model as opposed to any other. And finally, it's important to understand that a model might be admired for his or her art on its own, or as part of a longer tradition within which he or she lies, thus validating and reinforcing the significance of that longer tradition in the eyes of the younger artists. And just to get us into the mood, as it were, I decided to put up uh, three images. First of all, of course, the man himself, Paul Rubens, and then on this side, two paintings which summarize, to a certain extent, elements of influence, of reference to, homage to. The upper painting um, is by Fontaine Latour. They're both by Fontaine Latour. Here we have homage to Delacroix, and significantly, the artist Fontaine Latour is down here. The portrait of Delacroix is up there, and standing immediately to the right is one of the artists that we're going to be considering today, Edouard Manet. Um, and down here, a critic, actually two, Baudelaire and then Champfleury, who were also uh, important in um, mediating Rubens to the next generation of French artists in the 19th century, namely the generation of Manet and the Impressionists. And then down below, just to reinforce this effect of influence on homage, um, we have here Fontaine Latour's uh, studio at Batignolles, a uh, painting of 1870, where we have Manet painting the portrait of Astruc. But in the background, who should we see but Renoir, who we're going to meet this after the, today, um, and back here, Monet, who we're not going to meet this afternoon because he and, Ren and Rubens didn't have an awful lot in common. Now, in this lecture, I do not intend to survey the work of Rubens. Uh, that has been dealt with in previous, in previous lectures and, of course, in the exhibition itself. Rather, I'm going to briefly highlight the key aspects of the Flemish master's art, which resonated down the centuries and were thus relevant to the artists of the 19th century. I'm then going to consider the impact of Rubens on those French artists who turned to the example of the Flemish master to form paths towards a modern language of Western art, namely, and I'm going slightly outside the Impressionist remit here, but you'll see why, Delacroix, Manet, and then Renoir and Cézanne. Now, I've put up on the screen a selection of major works by, by Rubens uh, to really demonstrate the range of uh, work, of motif, of uh, subject matter that he worked within, that he excelled within, I should say. He was an artist of religious works, top left-hand side, mythological scenes on the top right, landscapes on the lower left, and uh, was also a history painter, a painter of large-scale decorative cycles, as well as a portraitist who dominated the northern European scene in the 17th century. He was also a dealer, a diplomat, and an artist whose success brought with it great wealth that enabled him to build his own townhouse in Antwerp, acquire a country property, Hetstein, in the Brabant, and put together a collection. In addition, he ran an extensive studio, which formed a subsequent generation of artists, including Jakob Jordans and Anthony van Dyck. 
the qualities of his art which generated admiration and envy and gained him a constant flow of commissions from religious and secular patrons has been succinctly summarized as follows. Quote, a synthesis of the classical forms of Roman antiquity, the colors of Venetian painting, the power of Michelangelo, and the dramatic chiaroscuro of Caravaggio. Now Rubens's influence on the artists of the 18th century was reviewed in the previous lunchtime lecture. I now wish to move forward to the turn of the 19th century, initially to investigate what might seem at first sight something slightly outside the remit of this lecture. I wish to consider the impact of Rubens on John Constable, the great British uh, landscape painter, for the achievement of this uh, artist was to have a profound impact to subsequent generations of French artists, not least that of Delacroix and the, and the Impressionists. Now, this is not the place to rehearse the history of the emergence of landscape painting as a genre in its own right during the course of the 18th century, and particularly in, in Britain. Rather, within the context of Constable and this particular lecture, we should note that, first of all, within his work, the importance of the northern tradition, specifically that of the Dutch 17th century, artists like Hobbema and Rysdale, mediated through Gainsborough, had a major impact on the shaping of his art. Within this context, however, it's very important to remember that Rubens, as a landscapist, was held by Constable in exceptionally high regard. And I quote from Constable, in no other branch of art is Rubens greater than in landscape. The freshness and dewy light, the joyous and animated character which he's imparted to it, impressing on the level, monotonous scenery of Flanders, all the richness which belongs to its noble features. Rubens delighted in panorama, rainbows upon a stormy sky, bursts of sunshine, moonlight, meteors, and the impetuous torrents mingling their sound with wind and wave. Now the impact of Rubens can be found in three specific areas of Constable's mature work. First of all, there is his handling of composition. Constable was mindful of the compositional tenets of the French 17th century landscape painter living in Rome, Claude Lorrain. But there is powerful evidence, especially in his mature landscapes made after 1819, that he, he undertook a careful scrutiny of and learned from Rubens. And I put up here as an example precisely of this point of uh, Rubens's uh, landscape, uh, more early, sorry, view of Hetstein in the early morning, a painting of about 1636, which is now in the National Gallery London, which had a potent effect upon the making of the Haywain, which was made by Constable in 1821 and exhibited in the Royal Academy of that year. We note, for example, that there's a cluster of buildings on the left-hand side of the composition, providing weight and closure to the composition on the left-hand side. Both compositions also engage in a wide expanse of an open landscape on the right-hand side. Furthermore, they both give to the sky a very significant and constructive positive role rather than just being a blank backdrop. And all of this takes place seemingly within a natural landscape involving contemporary rural activity. Now, it's important to note that the landscape of Hetstein was in fact in the collection of Sir George Beaumont, who was a major patron and friend of Constable, and therefore Constable was able to study it and learn lessons directly from it. The second point that I want to raise in relation to Constable, because it's also relevant for subsequent landscape painters, is the role of the panoramic view. 
It's very interesting when you compare, compare, for example, the Rubens landscape on the left-hand side, summer, peasants going to the market of about 1618 in the Royal Collections, London, with a sequence of, of views of Hampstead Heath and Branch Hill Pond, which Constable made during the course of the 1820s against a backdrop of his oil sketches that he undertook directly from nature, the so-called cloud studies. And I think that there is, in a sense, a very close correlation between the two. And although Constable is moving forward, he is certainly aware of the significance of Rubens in dealing with this particular um, approach to landscape composition. And thirdly, we have the question of specific motifs. Now, I could have invested rainbow, investigated rainbows, but here I'm considering carts and horses. Constable owned a print after Rubens by Shelter von Bolzwerk, the, which was a landscape with cart, which is up here on the top right-hand side, in his very extensive collection of more than 5,000 prints after old masters and 18th century artists. Um, and this could certainly have informed his setting of the cart and horse in both the Haywain and Hampstead Heath and Branch Hill Pond. However, here we meet a warning. The same landscape print may well have inspired Gainsborough's introduction of a cart into his sequence of harvest and market cart landscapes, including the harvest wagon of 1767 on the lower left-hand side. Are we thus seeing a direct influence of Rubens on Constable, or an indirect one mediated through another artist whom Constable greatly admired? namely Thomas Gainsborough. And that is a problem that you come up time and time again when you're looking for these sources of influence having a major impact on a younger generation. Suffice it to say that the developments which Constable introduced into the making of the natural landscape, endorsed by his admiration of and instruction from the landscapes of Rubens, were to have profound effect on the emergence of a school of natural landscape painting in France, the Barbizon School, which lay the foundations for Impressionism. This thus takes us across the channel, where in 1824, Constable had his Haywain shown at the Paris Salon of that year. Here it was seen by Delacroix and a young generation of artists, which included Daubigny, Théodore Rousseau, Troyon, Diaz de la Peña, in other words, those who formed the basis of the Barbizon school. For Delacroix, the seeing of the Haywain caused him to reprint the landscape in the, repaint, sorry, the, the background, uh, the landscape in the background of his own 1824 masquerade kiosk, which he showed in the Salon of 1824. For the future members of the Barbizon School, it pointed the way to the importance of recording the actual landscape of initially the forest of Fontainebleau, based on direct sketches made in front of the motif, such that the configuration of the landscape the relationship between clouds in the sky and the light that is cast from the sky onto the landscape below is truthfully noted prior to the sketch being transferred onto a larger canvas within the studio. Now this of course was a practice identical to the one that Constable had followed, but which was of course going to be modified by the Impressionists who rather than just sketching out of doors and completing within the studio are going to take their their large-scale canvas out in front of the motif and paint it directly in front of the motif and then exhibit that painting, not a variant of it. Now, the example of Constable with the influence of Rubens on his art has introduced the figure of Delacroix into the story. His role was of immense significance for the evolution of French art in the 19th century, 
in part due to the relationship between his art and that of Rubens, which then informed the work of the Impressionists in general, and of two in particular, Renoir and Cézanne. There can be no doubt from visual evidence, as well as from his correspondence and his journal, that Rubens was of great importance to Delacroix. But why should this have been so? What did Rubens's art stand for? Why should it have been so pertinent to the younger Frenchman's own artistic journey, that is, in the first half of the 19th century? Well, first of all, Rubens was regarded by the younger generation of artists emerging at the beginning of the 19th century um, who were to forge romanticism as the essential antidote to, the liberator from, the constraints, the frigidity, the calm grandeur of neoclassicism as articulated in the art of Jean-Jacques-Louis uh, Jean David, exemplified in his Salon contribution of 1786, which was the Oath of the Horati. Very calm, quiet, noble arrangement of figures, no confusion, no befuddlement, the colors very clear, the outline very crisp, very direct with a single message which is being communicated. The artists who, however, decided they did not want to follow this route, but to go in another direction, turned to Rubens, and they included uh, not only Delacroix, who I'll come to in greater detail in a moment, but in particular, Jericho, Theodore, uh, Theodore Jericho here, up here with his charging cuirassier, whose horse has all of the dynamism and force of the horse here on the right-hand panel of the uh, taking down of the cross, and of Gros, the great painter of many Napoleonic battle scenes, where, if you like, the chaos of battle in the left-hand side of uh, Jules Maccabee uh, by Rubens is very much captured in the flurry of activity going on here. No clarity, no simplicity, no calm nobility to be found in a painting such as this. And indeed, when we look at uh, what Delacroix has to say about uh, Rubens, we are very struck by the way in which he captures, if you like, the spirit of the, uh, of the meaning of the artist to this generation of Gros, Jericho, and himself. And I quote, that man Rubens is admirable. What an enchanter. There is a man who has the courage to be himself. By permitting himself everything, he carries you beyond the limit, scarcely attained by the greatest painters. He dominates you, he overpowers you with all his liberty and his boldness. I take note also that his principal quality, if one is forced to make a choice, is the prodigious relief of his figures, that is to say, their prodigious life. And secondly, I think, Rubens was significant specifically uh, for Delacroix's work in, uh, in a way which was directly pertinent to the next generation of avant-garde artists, notably the Impressionists. And the three areas that I want to explore today are, first of all, chromatic analysis um, and the implementation thereof. Secondly, scale, that is, working on a decorative uh, dimension. And thirdly, compositional energy and coherence. Now let us first look at chromatic analysis. It is known that Delacroix, early in his uh, training as an artist, undertook very close study of the Marie de Medici cycle by Rubens, which had been commissioned by Marie de Medici in 1620, had been accommodated in the Palais de Luxembourg, but which had been transferred to the Musée de Louvre um, at the time of the revolution in 1789. In particular, although he was amazed by the entire 
decorative scheme, he honed in, in some ways, on the, uh, the disembarkation of, or the landing, of Marie de Medici in, Mer in Marseille, a painting of uh, 1621 to 4, on the extreme left-hand side. And what he discovered there was something which he was to capture initially in a series of sketches, and I put one oil sketch up here. It is the figure of the naiads who are there cavorting at the bottom below the boat, where he observed that Rubens did not just paint the white droplet, the droplets of water on the flesh of these nymphs, these water sprites, uh, in white, but he actually introduced chromatic uh, tone. In other words, he introduced elements of the color of the rainbow. Now, it was that that led him to understand that Rubens was doing something which a, an artist working primarily in uh, monochrome would never have ever done. And in the light of that lesson, he introduced similarly chromatically toned droplets of water onto his slightly less idealized um, figures in the Barque de Dante, the boat of Dante's boat, which was exhibited, it was his first major salon exhibit of um, 1822. And it's down here that you find what he'd studied in, caught in his sketch here, which he'd caught from here, which then, as it were, passes through into, into the next phase, if you like, next iteration of his art. But having learned that lesson, he then becomes acutely aware of the significance of color. And in the process, not only engages with developments in the thinking about complementary colors, which is coming through in France in the 1830s, spearheaded by a physicist called Chevreuil, who publishes a book on precisely this subject in 1839, but also applies the principles of complementary colors throughout the rest of his work. And by complementary colors, we mean that we have the primary colors, red, yellow, and uh, blue, and each of those colors has a complementary color. Red has green, yellow has purple, and uh, blue has orange. And by putting these, juxtaposing this primary and its complementary color together, you heighten the, uh, the coloristic effect and also the dramatic effect of the picture that you are uh, you're making. Um, and in that, sense, and as evidence of this running right the way through his career, we arrive at a very late um, decorative uh, cycle that he does for the Church of Saint-Sulpice in Paris, in the Sixième. Uh, those of you who haven't been, do go. It's worth every moment of a visit, not only because of Delacroix, but also because it has a great organ by Cavalier-Cole, which is worth listening to. Um, but here we have Delacroix. Uh, basically applying the principles of complementary colors that he learned Van Rubens and Chevreuil to this late work. And it's this particular large-scale mural decoration that we know the Impressionists actually came to study in order to understand more clearly how they could also drag their tonality out of a palette which is loaded with black and white into one that's resonant in color. Secondly, we have the question of scale. This is, if you like, the decorative dimension. Delacroix engaged in large-scale decorative schemes from the library of the Chambre des Députés to the Senate, uh, the Galerie d'Apollon in the Louvre, and to the Chapel of Saint-Sulpice, which I've just mentioned. Very aware of the lessons um, that could be learned from Rubens, who was an artist who had mastered the challenges of working on a large scale. And this can be seen from the Marie de Medici cycle, which I've just been referring to, to, for example, the banqueting ceiling here in London. 
and also to the scale the monumental religious paintings primarily commissioned for Antwerp Cathedral and the churches of that city. Delacroix receives his first public uh, decorative commission in 1837. In 1836, he undertakes the first of two visits to Belgium, specifically to study Rubens. The second visit was made in 1850. Now, not only was he overwhelmed by the majesty of the Flemish artist's achievement, on a visit to the Antwerp Museum, he declared, quote, I, have, I had never before found in the works of Rubens to such an extent that superiority which crushes everything around them. But he also studied the artist's compositions and technique, especially on his second visit in 1850, made in preparation for the execution of the um, Galerie d'Apollon um, here in the middle. Uh, that's the sketch, and this is the finished uh, work. Um, he both notes how a painting on a large scale should be laid in on the principle of achieving intensity of tone and identifies the importance of achieving balance between simplicity of color and breadth of light in order for the painting to be read from a distance. Thirdly, we have the question of compositional energy and coherence. Delacroix found this principle most over overtly demonstrated in Rubens's wild animal hunt compositions. His interest in Rubens' hunt scenes were fed, first of all, by access to original paintings, seen, for example, in Paris, The Hague, Bordeaux. Secondly, through ownership of a set of Suterman engravings after Rubens' hunt scenes published after 1636, which he records studying in the 1820s and again in 1847. And thirdly, his own observation of wild animal hunts during his trip to Morocco in 1832, where he observes that they remind him of Rubens' renderings of the same subject matter. The result is a sequence of hunt scenes made in the 1850s, their chromatic values strongly derived from lessons learned from Rubens, while their taught compositional structure, were nonetheless, uh, which nonetheless contained bursts of movement and energy, are primarily informed by those wild animal hunt scenes by Rubens that he held in the highest esteem. For example, while he criticized certain of the hunt scenes for their absence of a singular integrated arrangement of figures and animals, such as he commented upon the one up here on the top left-hand side, um, which he felt had too much going on outside the sort of focal center of the composition and therefore distracted your attention. He drew especial attention to the hunt of the hippopotamus, praising it for being a single and unique group which constitutes the picture as a whole. The imagination receives a shock which is renewed every time that one's eyes fall on it, going on to declare that it is, quote, the fiercest, the one that I prefer. I love its emphasis, I love its forms, exaggerated and loose. I adore with all my contempt for the sugary women and the dolls who swoon with delight over the paintings that are in fashion and over the music of Monsieur Verdi. Delacroix summarizes, in fact, the towering significance of Rubens on his own work when he declared in a loose note leafed into his journal for 1847, Rubens arrives, having already forgotten the traditions of grace and simplicity. Through his genius, he creates an ideal once more. He draws it up from his own nature. We get strength, striking effects, and expression pushed to its very limits. Now, I do not have time 
to uh, consider the impact of Rubens on Delacroix's considerable body of religious paintings, evidence exists um, of his close study of Rubens' religious works on his two trips to Belgium, as well as of those examples available in the Louvre. However, the implications of these subjects, apart from the decorative works in the Church of Saint-Sulpice in Paris, for the younger generation of artists, i.e. the Impressionists, was much less overt. In moving forward to the generation of Manet, Renoir, and Cézanne, we have again to put the question, why in mid-century was the time right for a revisiting of the work of the Flemish master? This may be best answered by reference to the realist writer and critic, champion of Courbet, Jean Fleury, who we saw in the homage to Delacroix painting, who, surveying the artistic scene in about 1850, held Rubens as the primary antidote to the academic art of Ingres and Glière, the art precisely against which Manet and the Impressionists were battling. And I quote, when these young citizens begin to study painting, they go to Monsieur Glaire, the artist of this painting down here, who says to them, young students, close your eyes in front of the barbarities of the Spanish school. Never allow yourselves to glance at the impudent Rubens. In other words, Rubens once again provides a model of an alternative tradition, the colorist, the painterly, but with an additional factor this time of a greater stress on the natural as opposed to the idealized. Um, that is uh, the treatment of the figure, for example, according to antique models, which of course very much underpinned both the art of Ingres and the generation of Glaire, which included people like Cabanal, uh, Jérôme, and so on. Now, Manet's relationship with Rubens was complex. Rubens provided essentially three elements in the formation of Manet's art. An immediate relationship with Delacroix, whom he greatly admired and whose work he studied in his youth. Remember his presence very much at the center of the homage to Delacroix in uh, Fontenatour's painting of 1864. He also gained from uh, Rubens specific motifs for an early painting, and he was also a model in his search for his own visual language, which was to emerge from the early 1860s. Now, first of all, there is a direct relationship between, uh, with Delacroix, uh, as far as Manet was concerned. During his training at Couture's uh, studio from 1850 to 1856, Manet and his lifelong friend, Antonin Proust, visited Delacroix to request permission to copy his Barque de Dante, which we've seen in a previous slide, then in the Musée de Luxembourg. Proust records his memoirs, or in his memoir of Manet, that the older artist, leader of pictorial romanticism, while agreeing to the copying, declared his allegiance to Rubens to the two young students. Quote, one must look at Rubens, be inspired by Rubens, copy Rubens, Rubens was God. Now, this kind of um, advice, if you like, and intention, is carried to the point at which Manet does precisely that. He looks specifically at Rubens, and in particular, he looks at a specific motif, which he then integrates and uses the basis for one of his own compositions. I'm talking about the taking of Susanna and the Elders, an oil painting now lost, which was also engraved by Wurstermann after about 1636, um, which uh, Manet could certainly have known, but which then, being Manet, <laughs> elliptical and difficult artist that he is, he starts playing with it. 
And he first of all reverses the pose of the figure sitting on the, on the, uh, on the, the bank here, on the, the mound. He then, rather than treats it as a Susanna and the elders subject, translates it into a biblical, another biblical subject, the finding of Moses in the bulrushes. But if that isn't enough, he then, when he comes to paint the finished painting, gets rid of all of that clutter on the, right, the left-hand side of the composition, pairs it down to a single seated nymph, although when, which was then uh, exhibited in 1861, but at that time, peeking out from the shrubbery behind here was the figure of a satire. So he translated it into an allegorical picture. And it was only, in fact, after Manet's death in 1883 that, in fact, the satire's head was painted out and the painting now appears like this in the collection in Buenos Aires. Now, one of the models from which um, Manet derived lessons and then used as a springboard for the development of his own style of painting, appropriate to the recording of modern life, was also Rubens. And this is perhaps best demonstrated, almost clearly demonstrated, in a work such as Fishing. Here, a painting made 1862-63. Um, now, in this painting, Manet dresses Suzanne Lenhoff and himself as Rubens and Hélène Fourmont, an overt reference, in fact, I think, on the part of Manet for his ad admiration of the art of the past, and especially to Rubens. One has to remember also that Manet, this painting is made when Manet is about to marry uh, his long-term um, mistress and erstwhile model. Indeed, she was the model for, Las, uh, for the Nymphe Surprise in the previous uh, image. However, the trouble is, problems emerge at this point, because the rest of the painting refers on the one hand to Bolognese's 17th century pastoral scenes, such as the nymphs bathing in the water up there. The actual landscape is in fact a landscape painted in the west, to the west of Paris at Saint-Ouen, where the Manet family had a country house. The figures in the boat are in contemporary dress, and the boy on the bank, who is also in contemporary dress, is Suzanne's illegitimate son, Léon. So what's going on? Well, Manet is seeking a way to find, a way of building, in fact, on the past to create an art of the future. That was, in a sense, his program as an artist. This fusion of old master and contemporary observation is here still overt and creates a sort of dysfunction within the composition. Whereas in a work such as Déjeuner sur l'herbe, on the lower right-hand side of 1862-63, the old master sources have been integrated and subsumed within the modern language of both subject and technique. Now, it's well known that neither Monet nor Pissarro, amongst the Impressionists, considered copying from the old masters to be of any consequence in their search for a new style of painting in the late 1850s and early 1860s. Pissarro, indeed, was happy to allow the Louvre to be burned. However, leaving aside Sisley, who had profound admiration for Constable and thus indirectly for Rubens, as we have seen above, it was two other members of the group who not only took lessons from the old masters during their formative years, but also continued to hold them in high regard throughout their careers, Auguste Renoir and Paul Cézanne. And amongst the, the old masters most highly regarded by both of them was Rubens. Renoir was noted to have moved from admiration of the antique in the Louvre to that of Rubens, followed by that of his 18th century successors, Watteau and Fragonard. 
He also copied after the portrait of Hélène Fourmont and uh, her son Francis, and a Kermes painting, both in the Louvre. Late in his life, after a visit to Munich in 1908, he declared to Walter Pach, and he would have seen these two pictures on the right-hand side, consider then those paintings by Rubens in Munich. It is there that there is the most glorious plenitude and the most beautiful color, and the layers of paint are very thin. It's a very important comment. I'll come back to that. Within this consistent admiration, Renoir also appreciated three specific aspects of Rubens' art, which he then applied to his own work. First of all, he deeply admired the achievement of sumptuous luminosity, which Rubens gained in or acquired or made possible in his work, not through the application of heavy impasto, but through a softness of touch and very thin applications of paint. The revelation for this came when Renoir was working in the Louvre, and he comments later in his life in a conversation with Ambroise Vollard, the dealer, that one day in the Louvre, I noticed that Rubens had achieved more sense of values with a single scumble than I had ever done with all my thick layers of paint. Now this led Renoir to the introduction of the feathery brushstroke with which um, thin paint was applied to the works of the 1870s, such as you find very well demonstrated in these two paintings here of 1874 and 1876 7 The Path on the Top and uh, Madame Manet and her son in the lower, sorry, Madame Monet and her son um, in the Garden at Argenteuil of 1874. It also involved an understanding which Delacroix had also had that Rubens did not use black in his shadows, but applied different tones. And I quote from Renoir. Look at Rubens, see how his shadows are thin, so thin that you can see through them. The shadows are not black, no shadow is ever black. It always has a color. Nature only knows colors. White and black are not colors. And that, of course, is absolutely clear in the application of shadow down here, where he's introducing blues into the shadow as opposed to black and also in the articulation of the shadow cast by the trees up here. Of course, it is a standard, it's a classic impressionist um, note, if you like. Secondly, we come across scale of composition. This is where you get sometimes into rather difficult territory with Renoir, but never mind. Um, after the crisis of impressionism in the early 1880s, which caused Renoir to seek greater permanency in his art through a return to the antique and the art of the Renaissance, embarking on a prolonged engagement with the nude, the artist began to work on a larger scale, such as the creation of the Grand Beigneurs of 1885 on the lower left-hand side here. Renoir was aware of Delacroix's debt to Rubens in maintaining unity within multi-figure composition and shared this with the, with the romantic artist. And it's this that you find so clearly demonstrated when he comes to deal with these much larger, um, very extensive nude uh, subjects, whether it's this which is slightly more multi-figure or this which just has two and two smaller figures in the background, where he's very carefully calibrating and balancing out the, the weight of the figures in the foreground with the extent of the landscape in the background. That's something that certainly he would have learned from uh, Delacroix's handling of exactly that sort of problem in a large-scale decorative scheme and also would have taken him all the way back to the Marie de Medici cycle, which of course he also studied. Now the third and important point, uh, which comes out here, 
and again in my next slide, is the manipulation of the nude figure itself. After an initial period of dry painting, as we call it, in the 1880s, which is actually what marks the Combeigneurs on the lower right-hand side, it's quite um, a, it's, it's paint laid in on white gesso, it's very uh, dry, uh, it uses a very clean outline. And this is something that uh, Renoir is experimenting with at the time, really through drawing again from the antique, looking at Raphael in Rome, particularly the Stanze, and also reconsidering lessons he might learn from Ingres, in fact. However, come the second half of the 1880s, he moves into a much softer handling of paint to produce nudes, such as sort of these rather roly-poly ones, on the lower right-hand side. But although we may find these somewhat problematic, uh, I don't think they're to everybody's taste, they are in fact absolutely within a lineage which goes from Rubens. In the first instance, he understands that unlike how he treated nudes in the 1870s, where the nude becomes, the form of the nude becomes shattered by the light and shade which is allowed to be cast across the surface of the three-dimensional figure itself, so that the figure, as it were, loses its, uh, its integrity. Looking back at how Rubens handles the nude, which you have in the, t in the center, the, the uh, three graces in the top, in the Prado there, you're aware, he became aware that actually you could get luminosity within the painting of the nude, but nonetheless could retain the integrity of the three-dimensional form. And if this isn't enough, then also in some of his work, we see him directly lifting from uh, motifs from Rubens, his acclaimed master, to his own work, such as this example of um, the uh, Judgment of Paris, a painting that he saw in the Prado during his visit to Spain in, 18, in 1910, and again applies to this painting, um, of, which is now in Hiroshima. Now I now quickly want to pass to Cézanne. Although Cézanne shared with Delacroix, and to a certain extent with Renoir, a recognition that one of the reasons for being drawn to Rubens was that he was seen as the legitimate successor of the great Venetian colorists of the 16th century, Titian, Veronese, Tintoretto. Cézanne, like Renoir, had his interest in Rubens kindled by copying in the Louvre. For example, he studied closely, again, the Marie de Medici cycle, um, making copies of the naiads, those lovely cavorting ladies. Oops, sorry, I think I may be in the next. No, it's not. Um, I'll come back to the naiads in a minute. Um, the ones that we saw Delacroix also studying so closely. And over his lifetime, made 10 copies of the figure of Bologna, which um, was found in the center of the apotheosis of Henry IV. He journeyed to Belgium and Holland in 1880, where it was reported by Joachim Gasquet that Rembrandt made very little impression on him, but, quote, it was Rubens who dazzled him above all others. He remained ecstatic about him to the end. Furthermore, Cézanne was known to have had a photograph of Rubens' naiads from the, uh, the landing of Marie de Medici at Marseille pinned up in his studio. The impact of his consistent study of Rubens can be seen in terms of scale, palette, technique and approach, um, and the approach to portraiture and composition. Early in his career, Cézanne embarked on a sequence of large-scale decorations for the family home at Jazz de Buffon, outside Aix-en-Provence. As with Delacroix, and in his later career, Renoir, 
Cezanne's appreciation of the achievement of Rubens as a painter of large-scale decorational cycles impressed him, not least, as we have seen, with the Marie de' Medici cycle in the Louvre. In 1860, he created the Four Seasons, paired to flank each side of the portrait of his father, who sits in the middle. Um, each of these panels, just for your information, is 315 centimeters high by 98 centimeters wide. 300—that's uh, um, three, three meters nine, ten, meter, ten feet high, approximately. So these are on a massive scale. They were actually painted uh, on fresco into the wall, and they had to be lifted off. Um, those of you who may have a long memory will recall when we did the early Cezanne exhibition here in 1986, I reconstructed this sequence, which was a real shock to many visitors who had no idea of this aspect of Cezanne's work. But the point is, his ambition to work big is as much coming from Rubens as it is from the mediation of Delacroix, and that's the point I'm trying to make. However, he doesn't lose sight of the importance of scale. And in fact, later in life, he was, return, he was to return to, um, to the challenge of working on a large scale in the creation of his late bathers, to which I will return at the end of this talk. Secondly, he learned color from Rubens, the primacy of color which is central to Cezanne's art. Whether it's heavily loaded onto the canvas in his early work, such as in the still lives on the left-hand side, or applied with the constructive brush strokes in his later works, such as in the Bibamus uh, quarry on the right-hand side. He is quoted to have said, I want to make with color what others do in black and white with a stump. In other words, we're dealing with an artist where color is not just an analog for the tonality of objects seen in nature, but is also seen as something which has to be almost heightened um, engaged with such that when one touch of color is put beside another, the evaluation of the relationship between the two becomes critical. Thirdly, there is the question of technique. Now, you will recall that it was Renoir who had noted um, that there was a lesson to be learned from Rubens's handling of paint. He didn't ladle in very heavy paint, but actually acquired his effects or achieved his effects through very thin layers of beautifully handled, sort of luscious, almost loose handling of paint. And indeed, it was Renoir who had noted that Cezanne had lent, learned exactly the same lesson from Rubens um, as he had concerning the way in which luminosity and tonal harmony could be achieved. Um, this is very well demonstrated, I think, it's when we look at the journey that uh, Cezanne makes from the very heavily loaded um, paint uh, paintings made in the 1860s, encapsulated in a landscape such as View of Bonnières, or indeed his Uncle Dominique series of 1866-67, where the paint is actually loaded on as if he's sculpting the form with a palette knife. And then we move to these very thin layers of paint with often a lot of the, of the raw canvas showing through from behind where the paint has literally been almost floated across the surface to build up the landscape of Mont Saint-Victoire or the self-portrait of him and a palette. Fourthly, we have the question of an approach to portraiture. This is quite a complicated area um, to, to come to terms with in Cezanne's art. But I think what is important to notice is that Cezanne himself recognized that his approach to his sitters 
was probably too closely grounded in a need to make as truthful a representation of, as possible of his sitters, unlike the great masters of the past. He was too much the product of realism, if you like. But that having been said, he nonetheless understood that there was one artist who probably came closest to that element of realism, of naturalism, in portraiture, to whom he could turn as a model of the past, and that was precisely Rubens. And in fact, in a recollection that he has where he misremembered where he'd seen the portrait of Ellen Fourmont and her son naked, which is the left-hand side, he thought he'd seen it in the Louvre. He's talking in aches late in life. Um, in fact, he would have seen it in Munich, but no matter. I'll read you the quote nonetheless. He talks about this portrait and he says, the extraordinary Helen Formont in the Louvre, all russet colored, wearing a hat with her naked infant. For him, that encapsulated the achievement of the goal of portraiture, and it's one that he would seek to aspire to in a painting such as the portrait of Madame uh, Cezanne in the greenhouse on the right-hand side. And finally, we arrive at composition. It is here that we arrive at one of the most interesting yet contested areas of influence of an old master on a younger artist. We have to address Cezanne's engagement with the theme of the bather, a subject with which he engages throughout his life, culminating in the three great bather paintings made in the last years of his life. Um, and I just put up here a reminder. Here are the Rubens naiads of which he had a copy, pin, a photograph pinned up in his studio. Here is a copy that he made. Uh, he goes on copying Rubens throughout his career, as we saw with the Bologna sketch. And here is the Barc de Dante, which was the other picture, which had also borrowed from the Naiads, which he also had pinned up in his studio. So you see the kind of lineage which we're dealing with. And here are two examples of earlier bather pictures, one from the um, early 70s and one from the early 80s. Now, leaving aside specific prototypes, the importance of the example of Rubens lay in his handling of complex figure compositions, a lesson which Delacroix had also taken from the Flemish master. This is well demonstrated, I think, in the late Bather series, and particularly the one from Philadelphia. If we cast our eye carefully up to the upper left-hand side, we have Hero and Leander, a painting of uh, 1604, which Cezanne specifically refers to as an important source of influence upon his bather subject matter. And here we have him understanding how you deal with a complex grouping of nude figures as they circle around, which effectively do, at the lower part of his own painting here, now in Philadelphia. However, Careful analysis of this painting reveals one of the paradoxes of Cezanne's relationship to the art of the past. While the composition and the three-dimensionality of the bathers seem to denote debt to the great Flemish colorist, the landscape setting of the painting is still rooted in Cezanne's lifelong appreciation of the significance of the French 17th century artist, Nicolas Poussin's analytical approach to landscape. It is analyzed according to the underlying geometry, which is then translated into simplified form and planar recession. It's very interesting that when you look at, for example, the landscape here in the background of a calm, in calm weather, we have a, a building in the background, we have a building in the background, we have greenery, we have greenery. 
but we also have the arrangement, the banding of the composition of the landscape in horizontal bands that work their way across the composition, here in Poussin and here in Cézanne. And likewise, you get a similar effect in the landscape there on the lower left. Indeed, Cézanne himself was acutely aware of this struggle between Rubens and Poussin in his own art, as pointed out by Joachim Gasquet, and I quote, his greatest joy was going once a week to look at the Poussins in the Louvre, remaining a whole afternoon in ecstasy before Ruth and Boaz or the grapes of the promised land, studying the great Rubenses, the portrait of Hélène Formand, there again, the disembarkation of Marie de Medici, again, we're meeting it. Rubens and Poussin fought it out between them. The abundance of one, the order of the other, both haunted him together. Now, what do we conclude from all of this? Where does this leave our evaluation of these artists? We are no less admirative of the achievements of Delacroix, Manet, Renoir, and Cézanne for having derived lessons from a great old master. None are mere imitators or copyists. Rather, all use this common source, directly or indirectly accessed, to inform their own art, to resolve specific artistic issues, to find their own individual style appropriate to their own time. We can close on a reflection which Cézanne shared with Joachim Gasquet towards the end of his life, in which he pondered his own place within the longer tradition of painting. Quote, Rubens, Rubens, listen, that's another age. All that. We're in the evening of the world. Painting, like everything else, is vanishing. I'll be perfectly happy if they just leave me in peace. To which Gasquet replies, implying that Cézanne might actually be regarded as the artist who most summarized the achievements of his time and by so doing heralded the art of the future. And I quote, perhaps we're at a great turning point and you're the forerunner. Perhaps it'll be you on one of these canvases that they'll be looking at one day to find out what the people of our time thought and felt, all those people who don't even know you. Gasquet, of course, was correct and Rubens had a hand in determining it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marianne, for a wonderful lecture today. Musisi? Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.